in the name of God, the creator, liberator, and sustainer of the universe. Amen. Our gospel reading this morning on this, the second Sunday in the 12-day Christmas season, is from the second chapter of Matthew's gospel. Matthew is continuing his nativity narrative. And one of the things we notice in the Bible is that the nativity narrative in the Bible differs greatly from our own culturally Christmas narrative. Matthew is continuing the nativity story, the birth of Jesus. He has talked about the coming of the wise men, the astrologers, the political advisors, to perhaps the Persian ruler, people we believe who strongly opposed the empirical Roman Empire, they have come, they have met with Herod. They told Herod that they had seen a star and they were coming to, to see the one who was born who was to be called the king of the Jews. And here is one of the places where we have a great deal of difference between the biblical narrative of Christmas and our own. Matthew speaks bluntly about the presence of violence and political exploitation and murder in the presence of the coming of the Son of God in the human history. Pilate, Herod is especially outraged when the, when the free men from Persia tell him that it has been revealed to them that this newborn child is to have the title King of the Jews. That's the same title that Herod has. Matthew is clear that Herod wants to kill the child, but Herod does not say straight out, I want to kill this child. He says, as many political leaders do, and the Bible is clear about this, they say they want to pay homage to the newborn child. Violence is almost always in our political structure hidden under pretentious piety. I am a good Christian and I should be elected to this office and all true evangelicals support me. The wise men leave and Matthew continues his narrative. Now, Matthew is perhaps the most Jewish of all the writers of the Gospels. They all are Jewish. 
As a matter of fact, in the early church, all Christians were Jewish. But Matthew may be the most Jewish, and it is clear that he's addressing an all-Jewish, we believe, church. Matthew wants to make a connection between Joseph, who is, the, who is Mary's husband, and the Joseph, who was the great patriarch in the book of Genesis. Matthew is very much aware that Joseph, the great patriarch, remember the one who was sold by his brothers and into Egypt, and then he rose to power in Egypt because of his ability to interpret dreams. In the Bible, very often, the ability to interpret dreams is seen as spiritual sensitivity. And Joseph is given the name by his brothers, the dreamer. Joseph is, I believe, the first person in the Bible to be given that title, dreamer. But Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary, is also a dreamer. And Joseph has received three dreams. The first dream he received was when he discovered that Mary was pregnant and they were not yet married. We believe that this young teenage pregnant woman could have been stoned to death if Joseph had so chosen. But God appears to Joseph in a dream and says to Joseph, Joseph, this woman is blessed. The thing that she is doing is of God. And what we need for you to do right now, Joseph, is to cover for the Holy Spirit. Take this woman. Take this woman to be your wife. Love her and stay with her, Joseph, for she is blessed. Now, we already know that Joseph was not going to stone her. He decided to put her away privately. But now he makes the decision as a result of his sensitivity to the reality of this dream to take her as his wife. And then they are forced to go on a census by the Roman Empire, a census that was intended to build up a tax base so they could have more money. It was a hard journey. It was a hard journey they went on, these, these two people, she was in the last months of her pregnancy. They get to Bethlehem. He has no family there. They've gone. He had had to return to the town of his birth. And there are many people who have come because of the census, and there is no place. Finally, they, they, they are given a barn. We prefer to call it a stable, as if Jesus was born maybe at Churchill Downs. It was a barn. And the only place Mary could place the baby was in a feeding trough. We prefer to say manger. It sounds a little nicer, but it's a feeding trough in a barn. 
You can only imagine that it must have been a difficult birth. Joseph maybe being the midwife, not much experience. But the baby was born. Then Joseph's given a second dream. The second dream is Joseph, Herod has decided to kill Jesus. Herod has decided to kill Jesus, and you need to flee. You need to flee. You and Mary and Jesus need to leave now. Joseph pays attention to that dream, and they leave. And this is what Matthew wants you to know. Right at the beginning of this gospel, right in the middle of this nativity narrative, the savior of the world became a political exile. The savior of the world became a political exile, and the Holy Family became an immigrant family, and they crossed the border with a child, most likely undocumented. Any, anyone who mocks political exiles, Anyone who belittles political exiles is engaged in an act of dehumanization and is in a very major way attacking the Lord of history who knew life as a political exile. Holy Family was an immigrant family. Then Joseph receives a third dream. A third dream after Herod has killed so many children looking for Jesus. Herod had his own plan of how to separate children from their parents. He was just more straightforward with it. We'll just kill them. All children under two, we kill them. Matthew is clear. Matthew is clear about political violence and the reality of it. Then, then Joseph has a third dream. <coughs> and in the third dream, he is told that Herod is dead <clears throat> and that he can go back to his home country. But you can't go back to the town where you came from. It's too dangerous still. You must go to a little frontier town, a little insignificant place in Nazareth called Galilee. And there the Son of God will grow up. He will be known as a Galilean. And people will wonder if any good can come out of Galilee when he begins his ministry. 
I, I remember the conversation as if it were yesterday. The person said to me, I've just come from a meeting of doctors which was held in the president's palace. And when I had to go out and take a phone call, I overheard a, another meeting that was taking place in a smaller room beside where I got the phone call. And they were talking about you, and they were talking about a plan to kill you within the next 24 hours. He said, you need to take this very seriously and get out of this country, the Dominican Republic, within the next 24 hours. A few hours later, I received another call. It was in very coded language, but it confirmed the message that I had received from the doctor. I was in a state of shock. I did not know what to do. I, 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 I knew that authoritarian governments, particularly those engaged in violence, strike back. I had been arrested. I had been interrogated. But I had also been let go after the World Council of Churches intervened. I was not at all expecting this. I, I did not know what to do. I, I met with my bishop. I talked with him. My bishop was a good man, but he was a very traditional man, very conservative man. He said, you have to go. I thought, well, do my family go? Do I leave them? Do I leave my parish, my congregation? Many people had been killed in our parish. Very often, soldiers would kill young people who work with us and leave their bodies on our doorstep. They would shoot at my oldest son, who was not yet in the first grade, as he left the parochial school, which we had. They would tear gas the congregation. The bishop said, you, you don't have time to get your family out. You've got to get out. I said, I can't leave. I don't, you, you needed certain papers to leave the country if you were a resident, and I didn't have those. He said, I will work out a plan. It was very unlike him. I talked with a few other trusted friends and my family. Everyone decided I had to go. The next morning, very early, the bishop picked me up. He drove me to the airport. He, he had not told me what the plan was. It turned out he had a ticket to leave the country and the papers. And when we got to the airport, he had asked me to carry his bag. In those days, it was not so much security in airports, and walk him to the plane. And right when we got to the plane, he, he pretended to be sick. And he handed me the ticket and said, you go to this meeting instead of me. And he walked back into the airport, and I walked up into the plane. And it left very shortly. I got to New York City. I, I was told to go to the National Church headquarters, and there would be a place for me to stay. 
It was a Saturday night, the building was locked, and it took me a while to get in, and it was a huge building, it was dark, I didn't, I didn't know anything. There was nobody there but the, but the custodian who let me in. During the next week, I, I, I was just in agony. I did not know what to do. I didn't know if my family was going to be safe. And then finally I heard word that they were going to be able to leave. But we had no place to live. I had no job. We had left almost everything in the Dominican Republic, including our Dominican bank account which we could not now draw on. I did not know what to do. I knew pain, I knew agony. I, I began to drink too much. I began to feel the pain, the isolation, the displacement of what it means to be in exile. I was also aware during that time that as a white North American male with advanced academic degrees, I was in a much better shape than, say, the Holy Family had been, our most exiles in our own country. But still, it was almost unbearable. This was in the fall. Sometime around Christmas, I remember reading this narrative from Matthew's Gospel. And it occurred to me that the Holy Family had been political exiles. It occurred to me that Jesus had been an exile and that Joseph and Mary and Jesus understood my reality and I began to realize that, that out of his own exile, Jesus had brought a remarkable new form of transformation. And I began to see hope. My hope lie in the fact that I was always to live from this experience. That I was never to forget the pain of exile. But I was also never to forget that the savior of the world had been a political exile. We need to rescue Christmas, I believe, from a sort of pietistic spirituality that won't even allow the baby Jesus to cry. We need to rescue Christmas from a crash, uh, from a crazy form of commercialism. Commercialism that causes many lower class and poor people to go in debt. Commercialism that teaches that people love us related to how much they give us at Christmas. We need to look with the reality of the Bible 
with the reality of the Bible at the world in which we live. You know, in our own society, there are now, conservatively speaking, at least 12 million undocumented exiles. At least 12 million. They clean our buildings. They work in our meatpacking companies. They build our highways. And our response is to deport them, separate their children from them, and force many of them to contract the coronavirus because of the work that they're made to do. We are also living in a time in which we believe that in the next 30 years, we could see 200 million climate refugees, most of them coming from the two-thirds, the poor world. We could have 13 million, we believe, from coastal cities in our own country. What are we doing? What are we doing other than building walls? and saying that refugees are not really human. How do we plan? How do we plan to be a life-giving force in such a world? You know, in the last year, almost all of us have known a form of displacement, a form of exile, we have seen our nation move from a country that had built in the Newark Bay a statue that inscribed the words of Emma Lazarus, give me your tired, your poor, your hungry, the wretched of the earth, those longing to be free. And we've replaced that with keep them out, send them back, deport them. We know that, conservatively speaking, at least 600 children have no idea where their parents are as a result of official political policy of this country to separate children from their parents. We in the state live in a state that literally has a border with the developed world and the two-thirds world. And every day, Death occurs on that border. What does it mean? What does it mean to be the follower of one who knew exile? Perhaps the salvation question for us today is not so much what do we believe, but how are we entering into solidarity with all those who have been displaced. People have been displaced by the virus this year in our society. We've known what it, was, what it is not to be able to even hug our relatives. People have been displaced by the reality of violence against people of color 
which has called us to chant in our streets that black lives matter in a society in which we should never have a need to chant that because it should be assumed in our reality. We have all known displacement in one kind of another. And today we need to acknowledge that Matthew's gospel calls us to be in solidarity with the displaced, that the salvation question for us during this Christmas season is what are you doing? What are you doing about the separation of children on our borders? What are you doing about those who are sent back in the desert to die? What are you doing about people who are being arrested for giving water to immigrants? The late Salvadorian, Spanish Salvadorian theologian Ignacio Elicuria said that the mission of the church is always to take the crucified off the cross. We need to identify who are the crucified, what children are in danger of becoming displaced, killed, next? We need to answer that question, and we need to decide. We need to decide this Christmas whether we stand with Herod or with the Holy Family. To take the crucified off the cross before they die means that we enter in some way into the world of the crucified. But it is in the world of the crucified that we encounter the crucified one, the one who can restore us to humanity, the one who brings hope even in the midst of displacement. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit will come among us and give us the courage to make the same kind of choices that Joseph made. Let there be peace among us and let us never be instruments of our own or anyone else's oppression. Amen.